This week on the Back Table Podcast. In the past few days, I've been scanning at my ultrasound clinic for the Toronto folks, and there are a number of bowel endometriosis cases that I've sent back to them with that diagnosis, the mapping of the disease. And I know for sure they're in centers where that culture doesn't exist yet. That awareness of bowel endo is like super low, it's a rare thing. But when they start to see the nodules, they're gonna be asking their colorectal surgeon to come a lot. And that's gonna be another shock for that team there. So I'm really excited to see what's gonna happen as the diagnosis of bowel endo starts to become actually more real. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. This week on Backtable OBGYN, we are excited to welcome Dr. Matthew Leonardi, an advanced gynecologic surgeon and sinologist at McMaster University Medical Center in Hamilton, Canada. Dr. Leonardi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Amy. It's uh, really cool to be here and to talk with you both, seeing you both through our, our video recording here. It's awesome. Welcome to the show, and thanks again for coming on. I'm a huge fan of your work. Me too. I follow you on social media, but also uh, I don't know how you have time to do all the things that you do, but I was extremely excited when you agreed to come on the show because selfishly, uh, as a gynecologic surgeon and endometriosis surgeon and someone who reads ultrasounds, I am working to grow and build advanced ultrasound specifically as it relates to endometriosis at the University of Kentucky. And I want to know how to do it. And I thought who better to find out all that from than, than the expert. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, tell us, you know, where you're from and how you got to where you are today, and 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 all the all the interesting things about your career and in your life. It's a big question. I'll try to be pretty concise about it. But at the moment, I am an assistant professor at McMaster University, and I run an endometriosis clinic where we look after patients with pretty complex endometriosis. We scan all of the patients ourselves. We examine the patients. We perform the surgeries, me and my team members. We have a number of clinical fellows joining us to learn some of these advanced skills, which is great. It took me a long time to figure out how to get to where I am. Of course, we all go through an OBGYN residency. So through that OBGYN residency, a pivotal moment was when I fell in love with ultrasound found ultrasound to be this incredibly valuable tool, also incredibly fun, very technical, very uh, interactive with the patients, being the, the doc doing it. And I also fell in love with gynecology. And in North America, those two things don't really line up. We all know as OBGYNs that in the world of maternal fetal medicine, ultrasound is their most used tool. But I couldn't figure out how to do that myself as a gynecologist, a person who wanted to do gynecologic surgery. So I, I started to look outside of North America and I found these interesting pockets of uh, individuals in Europe, in Australia, in South America, who were doing ultrasound themselves as gynecologists and doing really advanced gynecologic surgery. So I spent a little bit of time in Europe, fell in love, realized in that moment, working with Davor Yurkovic in London, that my life trajectory was going to be different. And as I approached the end of my residency, I discovered uh, Professor George Condus in Sydney and decided to reach out to him to try and arrange an international fellowship. And that path was incredibly challenging. Some points of it, I wanted to 
I wanted to stop because it was difficult, so many obstacles trying to leave the country and go somewhere else, but I persisted. And that's where I learned how to do advanced gynecologic ultrasound, advanced gynecologic surgery, and combine them as a surgeon sonologist. Sonologist, for those of you that uh, are listening today that have never heard that word, it's essentially uh, an ultrasound expert. It's somebody who is a clinician, a physician that performs and interprets ultrasound. So that's what I am now. And I'm trying to really change the culture in North America, bring these new ideas here. And so, you know, hearing that you, Mark, are interpreting ultrasound and you're trying to introduce advanced ultrasound for endometriosis and other complex gynae pathologies, that's amazing to hear because that, in my opinion, is the future of our specialty here. Can I just ask a question about just in terms of pursuing that extra training? Because you alluded to the difficulties. I'm assuming you're a Canadian-born person. Yeah. How did you navigate that in terms of pursuing this specialized training abroad? It sounds challenging. Yeah, it was very difficult. The concept of international training could probably be a podcast episode all on its own. You know, how to find supervisors, how to go through that process, how to start living in another country. But fortunately, I did my residency at the University of Toronto and University of Toronto actually takes on a lot of international trainees. So it was a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Rohan D'Souza, who trained in the UK that set me on the path to find a potential elective supervisor in London. And it was that elective supervisor in London that kind of gave me a bit of a, a view of the field of gynecologic ultrasound. And so once you understand some of the players, we can call them, uh, in the field, you can connect with them. I sent a cold email to George Condas and I said, you know, I, this is something I'm really interested in. I'm going to come to Australia to do an elective. It was in a totally different arena. It was actually a, an MFM elective because I had a, a connection actually. And, uh, and I said to George, can I come for a visit to your hospital to meet you? I'm interested in doing an elect, uh, sorry, a fellowship. This was more than two years in advance of the intended fellowship start. Oh, wow. So it took a long time. He had a pre-existing fellowship. Yeah, he did. Already in place. Yeah. But was that primarily for Australian trainees? I mean, was that... Primarily. Or was it within the British... What's the right term for those of us who are American <laughs> who, who are uh, ignorant of the way things work? Well, we, as Americans and Canadians, we have a very similar training structure. Uh, compared to Australia and the UK. The training program, as they, they often call it there, is a little bit more of a, a maze, I would say, rather than you know, a direct entry into OBGYN and you, know, you have your residency program. They're called registrars there for the most part. There's a few other titles for different levels of individuals. And George had trainees who were advanced registrars doing essentially fellowship level training in advanced ultrasound and surgery. So he had that path for the classic Australian trainee, but didn't have a clear path for an international, though he had even before me a few international uh, fellows or trainees. So it was a little bit of arts and crafts, to be honest. But, you know, if you're motivated to do something and you feel so passionate to do it, you know, it's achievable. It's just not easy. There's, there's a way to do it. Now, that's amazing. I mean... I would love to be able to spend the time to learn these things, right? And I think one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, and, and we'll get to that a little bit later as we talk about setting up a program, but 
how do those of us in America and, and those of us who have endometriosis patients and deal with advanced gynecologic surgery who want to do a better job of this, right? Because I think that's the biggest thing is the more you know going into these cases, right? How do you do that when you're a practicing physician? How do you do that when you've got all the other responsibilities, RVU requirements and all these things? When for me to take a couple years off and go to Sydney, you know, I would love it. I spent a semester there in college, I lived in Coogee. I had an amazing time. I would go back there tomorrow if you let me. But it's hard to do that when you've got all the other responsibilities. And so, yeah, it almost seems like if you can't do it when you're a fellow, it becomes even more challenging. And that's where experts like you are so valuable to those of us out there trying to do it because you've done all this work to help us better understand what we need to do. But so tell us a little about the fellowship itself. So it sounds like it was both ultrasound and gynecologic surgery. Yeah, it was. Um before I tell you about the fellowship, I do want to acknowledge a, a point you made. Uh, yes, I did this training in my fellowship. It was a very devoted period of my life. But we all have to continue to learn. There's so many things in the in the few years that I've been in practice that I realize I'm weak at. There are things that I realize are gaps in my fellowship training, in my residency training for the chronic pelvic pain endometriosis population. Both of you are obviously very well aware that this population has a lot of non-gynecologic problems. They have gastrointestinal problems and genital urinary problems and nervous system related problems. And you realize, oh my goodness, like I am, you know, I'm doing my best and I'm, I'm pretty good at one particular area of what I do, but there's a lot of other stuff. So I'm also navigating that dilemma of how do I grow? How do I find time to grow? And I don't have, you know, the clear answer to it. There are strategies that, you know, we each can try and develop around CME, attending conferences, you know, doing programs and courses, but it, it's not easy. So listening to podcasts. Listen, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, being on social media, right? There's so much learning that you can acquire through Twitter alone or other social media platforms. YouTube, people have a plethora of content, whether those are surgical videos or ultrasound videos, you know, there, there's ways to do it, but it's, it's not easy. So I don't want people to, you know, listen to this podcast and think, oh, you know, Matthew can do this and it's this easy, easy thing. And, you know, it's impossible for me to learn it, but it's supposed to be easy. No, it's hard and it will require time and dedication. But if you want to do it, you got to do it. You got to follow your heart. I think that you bring up such a good point, Matthew, because I remember watching my mentor, one of my mentors, Mark Walters, give, I think it was the Ray Lee lecture at the American Urogynecologic Society. And one of the points that he made, because he did a lot of courses training international folks on surgery. And his main observation about teaching these physicians was that the people who got better were the ones who wanted to get better and engaged in self-inquiry and really tried to gain insights from their successes and failures. And that takes introspection. And I don't think medicine, it really lends itself to introspection and judgment and that self-inquiry as much as, I mean, it's not really ingrained as much in our culture. I think now it's getting more with this quality and safety, but sometimes that can feel punitive, I think. And I think that that's something that we always should be trying to impart to our trainees, that sense of humility because I think no surgeon is immune from complications. We can always do better, but you can't be complacent. I think these are lessons that you learn. And I think you bring up a great point. I mean, athletes are never satisfied with their performance, right? 
I love the analogy of the athletes. And I think you're right. Trying to learn. That's what I saw in Mark the whole time. And you see the greats really always trying to get feedback and learn. So I really appreciate that point that you made because it's never going to be easy. And I think we should always try and embrace the challenges. So I think that that just because you do a fellowship doesn't mean you're like, stop learning or what have you. Not that people think that. But it's also a culture change. I mean, Amy, that's such a good point you bring up, but it's a culture change. When I first started where I was, and it was I was kind of the only person doing what I do, and you'd ask for help, and you get the feeling like, do they think I'm a bad surgeon for asking for help? And there's this idea that, and like you said, in medicine, that humility can be confused with weakness, or all of it is to get better, right? That's the only goal. That's all there is. you know. And I we talked about my brother earlier, but I was complaining one day about getting, you know, having a hard day in residency and maybe screwing up something. And he said, well, is the attending right? And my brother's not in medicine. I was like, what do you mean? You know, this is about me and my hard day and feeling bad about myself. He's like, no, no, it's about whether they were right. And if they were right, you learn and get better. If they weren't and you were right, then don't worry about it. And it was a very simple, like, just get better every day. Forget the rest of it, all the other stuff. Amy, that's such a great point you bring up. But, but learning is something and getting better we have to do all the time. And that's why I really wanted to have you on because I want to learn. I want to get better. I want to incorporate a lot of what you're doing into my practice because my patients, I believe my patients need this. They need me to get better. Agreed. I think it's like a patient-centered goal here, what you're really describing, Matthew, because I mean, I, I'll just say that here at the clinic, everyone is ordering MRIs. I mean, because you really have to have the skill set. And for you, I admire the fact that you express this interest, but you're right. I mean, in North America, that the ultrasound expertise is really centered on an MFM and family planning, I would say. You know, they're very good at, at ultrasound and REI. But for gynecologic surgery, I would not say that that's necessarily our strength. I mean, you're probably one of the few experts in North America, really. It's interesting that you both bring up the utilization of MRI. There's a lot of culture that's ingrained here. And MRI, how radiologists do MRI is certainly one of them, preferentially, that is, to doing ultrasound or doing advanced ultrasound. But I mean, you both know that radiologists, and for the most part, of course, there's generalization here, they don't scan people themselves. They don't get to meet the people themselves. They don't actually understand like we do as gynecologists who are working with endometriosis patients, the plight of that endometriosis patient, how hard it is, how valuable that diagnosis is to them beyond the preparation for surgery. I talk about this concept, diagnosis is therapy, and this has nothing to do with planning for surgery. This has everything to do with the patient deserves to know and the, the sort of features around that. It's powerful. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, we we really do need a, a culture change. I think that's that's the biggest obstacle. And that's obviously a, a massive obstacle. How to create that culture change around the integration of ultrasound into our specialty. The other day, I, I made a, a comment on Twitter, maybe controversial. I said, the only way that I see us advancing in this particular field is if the gynecologist starts to hold the probe themselves. I do not think that we're going to see as much uptake in the world of radiology as we can see if we become the individual behind the probe with the machine. Truthfully, instead of doing a, an examination to try and feel for a uterosacral ligament nodule, for the listeners here, you know, you can't see I'm doing air quotes right now. The ability of our physical exam is so minuscule compared to the ability of the ultrasound probe, which allows you 
to get some dynamic feedback from the patient in terms of where they're experiencing tenderness with respect to disease sites or adhesions, but you see it with your eyes. And when you see it with your eyes, you believe it and the patient believes it. And then it carries forward to that absolutely essential preparation for surgery. This is something, you know, we can get into. There's obviously a few concepts here that we can, we can get into, but I'm a, a firm believer that even the most advanced gynecologic surgeons, if they're not integrating advanced imaging beforehand or don't have an interpreter of that advanced imaging, they're probably unintentionally and unknown to them leaving disease behind. I use ultrasound in the operating room to guide the, the dissection. Sometimes I use it to immediately preoperatively, as soon as the patient is asleep in their stirrups, I do a, a quick scan to re-review, particularly the posterior compartment in those patients who have advanced disease, a lot of adhesions, because as you look into the pelvis laparoscopically, and you see the bowel is stuck to the back of the uterus, sometimes the ovaries are not even visible at the beginning of the procedure, and you start to dissect those spaces, you know, you open your retroperitoneum, you do your ureterolysis, you start to do your enterolysis, your bowel comes off the back of the uterus. It looks messy. It looks difficult to actually interpret what's what. Is this just the dissection plane or is there a nodule here? And if you don't already know that information preoperatively and believe that information preoperatively, we're probably actually leaving disease behind that we just don't know is there because it looks all messy. It doesn't look like the classic superficial endometriosis deposit, blue-black or flame-like. So I think it's really necessary for us to actually start to do the scan ourselves so we can visualize the disease three-dimensionally, sonographically, and then compare that to the surgical view, which allows us to kind of uh, guide our surgical approach. Do you find a discrepancy between the haptic feedback of uh, performing an excision and you think, oh, I've excised disease, and then you do an ultrasound interoperatively and you find more disease? Does that happen frequently? Well, no, because we do the scan right before the surgery. So we're very intentional. So if we know we there's a right uterosacral ligament nodule where the endometrioma is stuck to, and once that endometrioma is removed and the ovary is tacked to the sidewall or to the round ligament, you know, we go after that round, that right uterosacral ligament. Whether it looks okay or not, we go after it because we already knew that there was something there. And so we don't end up finding things after the fact, after the dissection, because we're intentional about how we actually excise the disease. So you said the word dynamic, and that's when I, and that's the word I use when I explain to learners the difference between ultrasound and CTMR things like that. That's you just get a million slices and you can change the views and all that stuff. But ultrasound is unique in that it's a dynamic imaging modality. You can go out in front of your house with a point and shoot camera and take a picture and come out the next day and try to take the exact same picture. Your house is going to measure differently on the on the picture. Everything, the angles aren't going to be the same. And so looking at two different things, two different sonographers, two different individuals holding the probe will give you two different views. And you can miss with the tiny turn of the wrist or going a little too far, you can miss something completely or, get, or just get a completely different idea or view. And so when, you know, I've read ultrasounds from residency and then all through fellowship, I just, I always look at the pictures and, and, and read ultrasounds a few days a week here, diagnostic ultrasounds, but it was important to me, like you said, to get my hand on the probe. 
and the ultrasound suite was two floors down and it was not close enough. And so I finally got our own ultrasound machine. I actually messaged you on Twitter about what machine to buy. I'm sure you don't remember, but you immediately wrote back and helped me figure out which ultrasound machine we wanted to get. And we've got it. And now finding the tech, it takes a while, right? But getting a dedicated sonographer, but I can then go across the hall in my clinic and put the actual hands-on probe and do the scanning myself because it's so different. And that's what's unique about ultrasound is actually being able to, like you said, not just look, but also feel and, and get feedback real time from the patient in a way that's very unique from other imaging modalities. Mark, do you use a tech or are you basically using the tech and then you go in and you repeat the scan yourself? So we're still setting it up with the national shortages across the country. Um, that includes techs. And we've had, we were down a tech for OB and OB wins all in ultrasound. And part of the motivation for them allowing us to get our own machine is the is, is getting GYN ultrasound out of the OB ultrasound unit, but getting a tech that's allowed to leave the OB ultrasound unit and come upstairs and do GYN ultrasound. We're just now getting that started because it took six to 12 months to get it enough techs to allow that to happen. So I know what I, what I was planning on doing, but I'm actually extremely curious about what Matthew thinks of all this because I have ideas, but the expert is, is going to help me build that program here. And that's, so my plan was to have a tech and then sort of certain routine stuff, fine. But if there's a patient that has endo or for a patient who we suspect endo, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to scan, I'm going to put my hand on the probe and make sure we do those and also develop the techs because they're going to be new at this too. There's going to be a lot of learning. It's going to be a steep learning curve for all of us, I imagine, Matthew. Is that right? Yeah. It's not a, it's not an easy thing to learn. The premise of most gynecologic ultrasound is uterus and ovaries. And that's what sonographers, techs learn in their, in their education, in their curriculum. Doing anything beyond that is above and beyond and also starts to get into a bit of more, let's say, vague area where the borders of things are not as clear. The, the structures that you're looking at are not as concise, you know, with the, the ovaries, they're ovoid and they have a crisp border. Uterosacral ligaments, they're just a kind of a, a band. It's a bit more white than the surrounding tissue. So it does take time to master those other structures. But if you compare advanced GYN ultrasound to advanced obstetrical ultrasound, the techs are doing it. You know, they learn how to do it. And so it's, it's a technical skill. I learned how to do it. And when I left Canada to go to Australia, I think I had maybe less than a hundred scans under my belt. And those were things that I, I sought out in my residency program because it wasn't, gyne ultrasound was not a part of our curriculum at all. So I had done, you know, a selective here or there and picked up some skill, but I went to Australia. And for somebody who already understands the pathology and understands that patient population and understands, you know, how to navigate the vagina in some ways, you know, as a former obstetrician, still a, you know, a gynecologist, it's a familiar territory. So the learning curve is shorter for somebody who gets it. Sonographers might have a little bit of a longer learning curve because they're not handling gynecologic patients every day or gynecologic pathologies like, you know, the three of us do. So for you, Mark, and for Amy, and for any other GYN out there who's interested in learning it, it shouldn't be a scary learning curve because you already understand the pathology and you understand the patients and you're comfortable with them. So it's not as hard as uh, you think. And you wrote about this too, how to perform ultrasound to diagnose endometriosis, right? You've written a lot 
out there, which is great. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of what we've used, what we've read to sort of get these things set up. But the things that I think about are putting that into action, right? And so having the sonographer, being able to go in there and do the scans myself, you know, my plan was going to be to also order MRIs in these folks because we've got a great radiology team who we work with as part of our endometriosis program, who we read scans together and, and the feedback post-op, right? And, and okay, so here's what we thought we saw. And this is what we saw, which is something unique about what we do with ultrasound. And so the post-op comparison, how, how much is that incorporated into the learning curve? That was sort of my plan for how to, how to get better. Okay, here's what I think I saw. Let's do surgery or, and see what we saw and then go back and look at those pictures again. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant built-in learning curve. I wrote an article with uh, my colleague Mercedes and, and George called Closing the Communication Loop. And the sort of reasoning behind it was we as gynecologic surgeons, sonologists have that as a built-in loop. You know, we scan, we operate, we see the view laparoscopically, and then we, of course, get the pathology report at the end of the day to find out where, you know, the disease was positive or, or not. But nobody else has that. Sonographers don't have that. Radiologists, as far as I'm aware, you know, they're not receiving the operative notes or the pathology notes to close that loop. I know based on writing that and having it peer reviewed, there was actually some pushback because people will have greater workload. So if all of a sudden the radiologists involved in patient care, patients that are undergoing surgery are getting all of these op notes and path reports, and they're, you know, supposed to review them and check, was I right? Was I wrong? Where, where can I get better? That's an additional effort on their behalf. So we have to identify those obstacles so that way they can be addressed as well. But certainly I think it's a great idea what you've proposed to scan, you know, do your routine clinical care, which is your MRI at this point. And if you have very trustworthy endo aware radiologists, you know, you're going to be in good hands, operate, get that feedback, but then share that feedback with them too. And maybe a multidisciplinary rounds of some sort. Are there data comparing ultrasound versus MRI and operative findings? Yeah. A lot of the literature looks at the diagnostic test accuracy of both of the modalities, sometimes in the same study, sometimes in different studies. And there are a number of systematic review meta-analyses that try to compare the two. Uh, I've been involved in a, a few of them myself. And depending on the disease site, sometimes you have a bit of a higher pickup rate to sensitivity with an imaging modality. MRI seems to be a bit better for some uh, areas like the uterosacral ligaments at this point. But at the same time, they have a higher false positive rate for things like adhesions. So it's a bit of a trade-off at the moment. I'm super encouraging of people to use whichever modality that they have in their center because it's better than using the clinical diagnosis and exam and then, you know, trying to do surgery on a person without actually being prepared. That's a, that's a no-go for me. So using what you have, but trying to integrate the ultrasound to a greater degree because it's cheaper, it's quick, it's, it's usually more accessible than an MRI. I don't know what wait times are like for MRIs uh, in your centers, but here it's a long wait time. So it's, uh, it's sometimes a barrier to actually that care progressing in a timely fashion. This is a logistical question, but what's the reimbursement like? I mean, we have a U.S. surgeon and a Canadian surgeon, um, but really like our time is money. And I have the impression that 
point of care ultrasound does reimburse fairly well, like any kind of imaging, but I don't know. Do you guys have an idea of that? Well, our systems are obviously very different. In Canada, we have an exclusively public healthcare system. So patients never pay out of pocket for anything. Uh, there are some you know, exceptions to that in specific provinces or whatnot, but in my province of Ontario, there's no out-of-pocket expense for any patient. There's no code in our schedule of benefits for an endometriosis ultrasound or an advanced gynecologic ultrasound. So you're totally right, Amy, in that the effort that I put forward actually doesn't translate to appropriate remuneration. And I do think that's also an important obstacle to recognize because if we're going to try to increase the uptake of advanced ultrasound to radiologists or other gynecologists who are doing ultrasound, people want to be paid appropriately for doing work. And so radiologists are probably going to prefer reading an MRI, which they can navigate maybe a little bit better than an ultrasound since ultrasound is much more operator dependent and they get paid more to do the MRI. So what's what's the incentive here to improve their ultrasound skills if you know they have to go in and do it themselves that's not a good use of their of their time compared to what they're you know used to doing now it's an important thing we have to talk about i think for the american system there is a way of doing ultrasound that is just diagnostic so like i'm not in the room while the tech is scanning the patient i'm just reading the ultrasound that's a less than an rvu per scan um, but there's a way to make that a, a ultrasound consult I think that we're actually talking to the patient, writing a note and doing all that, incorporating that into your clinic visit also, I would imagine can, in terms of time-based billing, make that whole visit better. I don't, it's a good question, Amy. In general, it's not a huge... Reading G1 ultrasounds, if you're just doing very cursory basic stuff, I think can be a reasonable way to generate RVUs. But the way that Matthew's talking about getting in there and spending your time doing it, yeah, it's going to take a lot more time. And I don't, and that's something that, you know, talk to, we'll have to see what the codes are out there for that. I don't know the answer to that at the moment. But like most things, especially in women's health, the value for the time is probably undervalued, would be my guess. But yeah, I think that's something that we're working on too. And that's something else that like, Hospital versus, you probably don't deal with uh, Matthew, but hospital versus uh, outpatient-based billing. So a patient can get an ultrasound, a GYN ultrasound at like a strip mall ultrasound place and pay a $30 copay or go into a university setting where it's hospital-based. It's like same machines, same level training of the sonographer, same level training of the person reading the scan and get like a bill that's in the thousands because hospitals have lobbied successfully in the United States to be able to bill more for the same services because they're hospitals and they're more expensive. And so part of what I wanted to bring my ultrasound machine up into the clinic-based setting. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole other thing that I think the hospital side of things is is, is likely going to be the one that makes those decisions for us. But yeah, it's 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 always for us, especially in, in, in our system, it's a balance of our, how much is our time worth and what do our bosses want us doing with our time. And so I have a very supportive chair who believes she's a MFM and built the MFM program where we are, and she believes in the power of ultrasound. And has been very supportive uh, in our involvement with AIUM and going to meetings and trying to learn um, and was supportive of us buying this machine so we could do this kind of stuff. So I feel very fortunate um, and I'm very excited to get it going. But like in terms of setting up a ultrasound, a GYN, and specifically an endometriosis GYN ultrasound unit, like what does that look like? How would you tell me to do that? So... There are definitely a few models that you can consider, but for me, 
one of the greatest benefits to being a Synologist is I can do a visit all in one with a patient. The traditional model of gynecologic care is you have a consult, talk with the doc, and then they will write a requisition for you to go for an ultrasound. So the patient leaves and at a later date, who knows how long thereafter, you know, they go for that ultrasound and then there's a follow-up visit to discuss those findings. And that could be, you know, a week or maybe it could be three months depending on your wait times. So for me, all of that happens in one visit. So my visits are long. They're probably about an hour depending because we talk to the patient and then we do a scan and an exam and then we talk to the patient. And so we have essentially three patient appointments in one patient appointment. Do you bring the ultrasound machine into the exam room with you or is there one room with the machine where they go into? So we, uh, we have in, in my particular clinic, I have two machines dedicated to me and I have two what I call talk rooms. So to try and improve the efficiency of the machine, we have a bit of a flow where people might start in a talk room, have a bit of a chat, empty their bladder, go in for their scan. And then once the scan is done, they're given privacy to address uh, and get, you know, uh, presentable again. Sometimes these scans can be emotional for people or they can be even to a degree uh, uncomfortable. So we give them some time and then we bring them into a, another talk room. So there's a bit of a flow. And keep in mind, in my clinic, I have fellows and I have residents and, and medical students. So some of the initial intake information is collected by them and then reviewed with me. The fellows are learning the advanced ultrasound as well. So sometimes they're performing the bulk of the ultrasound. And then I come in over top, review their images in real time in front of the patient and, uh, and sometimes take a few more pictures if needed. Of course, over the duration of a fellow, uh, fellow's training, which is two years, at the beginning, there's a lot of extra pictures I'm taking. And then by the end, sometimes there's no pictures I'm taking because, you know, they're, they're actually very competent and they've collected all the information they need. So the structure of my clinic is very unique. Everything happens in one time frame for that patient. And I think that's great for the patient overall because it's convenient. They're not visiting the hospital at multiple occasions, paying for parking, taking time off work. But I, you know, I realize that may not be the easiest model to have one hour appointments. That's difficult. Amy and I have talked about this in the, in the past too. I mean, in Kentucky, we have a, a big population of patients who are from rural areas coming to see us. We joke about it, but like coming to Lexington, Kentucky is like going to Manhattan for a lot of folks. I mean, they're like one-way streets and parking garages is extremely overwhelming and, and, and it's very cost prohibitive for them to come see us. And so part of you know, the fiber program I built, having the IR doc come to my clinic, having you know, ultrasounds, MRIs be able to be read the day of and seeing them all same day. That's the model that we used to build that. And that was my thinking also for why I wanted a machine across the hall, like in my clinic, in my space, so I could have them come to see me if we needed to do a scan, have slots open. And we could be scanning the routine stuff too, but also have two to three slots per half day for all of my patients that come through so they can get a scan right then. They don't have to come back. Like you said, it can be weeks for the scan. I, I'm usually able to, to see them the day they get their scan. So when they come back, they just come right upstairs and see me that day to review the pictures and the scan. So I've gotten it down to like two visits now from three, but to have that machine and that availability real time has been a big push. And I love hearing that that's how you set it up. That's great. And from a patient perspective, I'm sure they're just like blown away that you're saving them weeks to months. Yeah, patient access and patient experience is huge here, what you're describing, both of you. 
And I mean, if there's incentive from hospital administrators to, you know, focus on that patient experience, and this is actually a really lovely model of care that can be considered. Now in, in Canada, we're in a fee-for-service model. The hospitals don't really make any extra money for the patients coming. So it's not, the hospitals are not so involved. It's more in some ways, a bit of a burden on us. I don't get to to bill more, though there are some time-based things. But at the end of the day, for me, it's not about money. Yes, of course, we all need to make money for our career. I feel like, you know, I'm really interested in pushing that agenda forward, doing the right thing, trying to encourage others to do that right thing for the patients and not focus so much on, you know, the day-to-day billings. In time, you know, the money will come and I'll be fine. But I need to make sure that we're we're changing the game for these endo patients because the, the game is not working for them right now. I think Amy and I are on the same page. Like when we talk about money, it's not because we're trying to figure out how to maximize our profit here. The thing though, especially in the US, the language we need to speak as physicians needs to include the financial side of it. Because if I'm going to expect my hospital to buy these machines, which is, you know, are extremely expensive and to and to purchase the time of sonographers and clinic space and all those things, we have to be able to justify that spend. We have to be able to justify the cost. And so for me to have one patient visit that takes an hour, but then opens up clinic space a week, two weeks, whenever they were supposed to come back, moving GYN ultrasound out of the OB unit. Now I'm backfilling. So you have to look at total cost, right? And all those things. And so why I think it's important is to be able to have that conversation in a meeting with your administrative side, say, okay, this is what I want to do. And here's why it's great for patients. It's great for turnover and throughput and all those things. It's also a smart business decision to like condense all of that work into one visit. Then I can just go boom to the OR. We've just, we've just eliminated steps. And obviously the steps are bigger and tougher for our patients, but they, st- I still have to, now I have to have two clinic appointments. I have to have an MA, an MA room, a patient twice and do intake twice. And I have to have a front desk person. All of that work is doubled or tripled by having them come back. So it, it is it is the kind of thing that a lot of us hear and we get pushed back when we're asking about building new programs. And so I do think it's important to talk about those things as well because we have to be able to explain why it's important, not not just for our patients, which it obviously is, but also how to get it done. I agree. I think you have to make the argument from an administrative point of view. You have to spend money to make money and you need to examine, I mean, what Mark is describing is essentially decanting Uh, volume from the obstetric ultrasound unit to a gynecologic unit. I need $100,000 to pay for this machine or whatever you pay. And then if you can facilitate and fill your block time in an efficient manner here, I don't know about the Canadian system, but the more efficiently you can fill your, your ORs, that also is compelling. But I know for generally speaking, I'm assuming it's the same way in Canada. There's just not enough MIG surgeons to meet the demand. I mean, you guys are there's just too few of you. I would say PAG is the same way, pediatric, adolescent, and gynecology. I mean, there's only 21 PAG graduates a year. I mean, and they're all spoken for. MIG surgeons, you guys are like, I don't know how many uh, fellowships there are, like 40 or 50 or something, but I mean, just not enough. It, it really speaks to me to the prioritization of the obstetrics part of our specialty. And, you know, Mark, it sounds like you have a very supportive maternal fetal medicine uh, department head. I do as well. But in general, our specialty is OBGYN. And there's such a prioritization on pregnancy. You can't ignore pregnancy, right? It's uh, visible. And there is a, a volcanic eruption at the end. 
that <laughs> and it's coming no matter what we do it, that train will arrive every day so you know you you can't ignore it and and that is very different than the endometriosis patient who unfortunately is ignored a lot and is much easier to ignore because it's pain and it's it's women's pain it's you know it's uh it's historical it's societal and so i think that's a big part of why there's a a backlog of of surgeries there's not enough surgeons there's not enough operative time. I certainly could use more operative time. I'm sure, you know, both of you could for your populations as well. And so these are bigger concepts that uh, are not easy to fix, but I know, you know, there's individuals across both of our countries that are advocates working for this. So that's optimistic. And yeah, and that's, and that's why I wanted to have you on. So we, you know, as we're doing all these things, as we're experiencing all of these challenges is to have a roadmap from someone who's done it and say, okay, so I have access to a machine. I have clinic space. I have a sonographer. Okay, but how do I learn how to do this? I was lucky. I know my intern year, we did tons of hands-on scans. And then something happened where MedLegal was like, hey, you can't kind of let an intern run around with an ultrasound machine in the ER. Like who's looking at these scans? Like there was no way to save the images. There was no way to prove that they'd done it. And so they sort of stopped allowing us to use ultrasound point of care like all the time. And I had gotten a hundreds of scans my intern year. And then by the time I was a chief, they started bringing it back because they could allow those scans to be captured. And I had one of my third years, hey, go scan this patient real quick, see if she's got a nice topic or what you think. She's like, what do you mean go scan the patient? I was like, no, like, you know, grab the probe, you know, take a look and see if you think there's anything going on in the head next. And she looked like, and she was an amazing resident. She's a GYN oncologist now. Looked at me like I was crazy. But just having had those few hundred scans my intern year and using it as a point of care tool, I never forgot how valuable and powerful that was. And I've continued to do that. I've continued to look at scans. I've had, I've called radiologists after the fact to say, hey, by the way, that was, you know, that was different than what you said and, and in a friendly way, right? But like, so they can learn too. But how do you learn to get better? How do you real time learn to get better? So what I did when I first came back to my institution, to McMaster, uh, was talk to the residency program director and suggested that the ultrasound rotation should diversify from primarily obstetrics to gynecology as well. Even though in the guidelines for residency in Canada, there are very few line items that are gynecology focused. You know, that I think is going to change with time and I'm going to try to be behind that advocacy. So now I have usually a resident, a third year or fourth year resident coming to the clinic. They come every week for about a, a four-week rotation. Certainly, it's not enough time to learn advanced things, but they definitely, by the end, know how to identify the uterus and find the ovaries, and they are picking up hands-on skill. Are they ready to go off into the world? No, not yet, but it's a first step. So there are usually ultrasound rotations at a lot of institutions and residency programs. That's a way to start that learning. If they don't exist, build it in. Find a way to build in an ultrasound rotation or create an ultrasound elective for those that are interested in it. I think that's one tangible way that we can start that learning. For me, the exposure to ultrasound was that pivotal moment of fascination. You know, getting to have my hand on the probe, even though it was very much obstetrical focused in my PGY1 year, I just loved the tool. So getting people to get familiar with it, the knobology of the machine, you know, interacting with the patient, it's not hard to see that passion develop because it is so fun. 
And so I think that's one thing that I've done and it's been successful so far at inspiring people to think about it a little bit differently than they have. Fellowship programs as well uh, is another way to start to integrate that into their training. So, you know, in my training program here, the fellows, they do become competent by the end. In other programs around the country, they're not getting that hands-on learning. But because this reputation for gyne ultrasound is growing here, I've noticed some of the programs are offering their fellows a day with the radiologist. They're, you know, they're starting that dialogue. And I think that's a place to start. If that's where ultrasound is done, get the fellow to go and spend time with the radiologist. Even if it's to learn MRI, just get that familiarity with looking at imaging. This is going to be a career project for me, you know, changing the culture of GYN surgery to make future surgeon synologists. But the dialogue starts now. The, the slow culture change starts now. I was just going to say, I love the, I love what you're saying. And it's like, and I think that the, the other thing that I really hope your inspiring words are just getting my wheels going is thinking about how do we break down barriers among the fields and radiology and other things. Because I know my MFM colleagues are using ultrasound to rule out hepatic rupture for severe preeclampsia and using FAST criteria. And um, the ED ultrasound fellowships, there was one in D.C. where I was previously, they had a very robust trauma surgery culture. And I watched this SGS video on ultrasound findings for endo and the sliding sign and, and the endometriosis kissing ovary sign and the, the endometrioma signs and all of those things that were just not. I think that also the advent of video, like you were saying about YouTube and all that, it's so visual as well as tactile, like having those resources available and Googleable is like a huge deal. I don't know if there's a lot of surgery U videos on it or in terms of AGL, what the popularity of the ultrasound videos have been, but I think you're right about the culture change. When I was doing residency, I remember vividly some of the other surgical services. They would have the images open in the operating room you know, they'd be looking at the images right before operating on the patient. And I can tell you in my residency of OBGYN, there was a single surgeon, Lisa Allen, uh, who is a PEG and an MIS surgeon, dual, amazing. She was the only person that I remember doing that with, opening the ultrasound images in the operating room right before operating on the patient. It was not part of the culture. So I think that's another strategy that's really easy to do now as well, as long as you have access to the pictures, you know, open them before you're going to operate on them. If you're the resident, it's going to be involved in the case. Look at the pictures, start to correlate to the sonographic views with the surgical views, even if they're not the advanced ultrasounds that are looking for deep endometriosis yet, starting to understand what adenomyosis looks like, what fibroids look like, what different ovarian cysts look like. You know, it's right there in front of you. You have the ultrasound images, the report, the surgical view, and then finally, the surgical pathology, that learning curve is right there for you, but it's not part of the culture yet. So I'd encourage residents who are really intrigued. That's one other strategy that uh, you could use. You know, people will find other strategies for sure, like attending conferences and courses, though it is not exactly finalized. It's very exciting that we're probably going to be hosting a pre-Congress course at the World Congress on Endometriosis next May. In Edinburgh, it's going to be hosted on the 3rd of May. And I have the, the great honor of kind of hosting this pre-Congress course. And it's 
you know, hopefully going to be very visual, very practical learning. And so, you know, maybe don't attend the surgical course that day. If there's one, attend the ultrasound course to get those skills, right? So uh, there are ways. That's great. Will the course be available only in person or will, will there be a hybrid format to the meeting that'll allow those of us who maybe can't get to Edinburgh very easily? I think it's primarily or exclusively in person at this point. I think a lot of Congresses are trying to get back to that only in person style, whether that's right or wrong is not for me to decide. It's the Congress organizers, but I think it's going to be uh, in person only. What is the uptake of ultrasound in, in like South America, Africa, Europe? I mean, we've talked about the US, Canada and Australia, but um, what is it like in the rest of the world? I don't know all of the places, but I know some luminary centers. And I, you know, I can say Brazil is a, a center that uh, is clearly far and ahead of um, a lot of places, especially North America, around gynecologic ultrasound. It's part of their culture. It's part of their training. Uh, there's a, a really amazing radiologist, Luciana uh, Shami, who is on Twitter. And she has these really great posts where she shows uh, an ultrasound picture, and then she shows a drawing that she creates for the surgeon. And in that drawing, it's essentially a laparoscopic view of the pelvis. And she draws where the nodules are. She draws where the adhesions are. She paints this picture for them in a way that's different than the report can do. And so, you know, that's, that's something that's happening there. In the UK, gyne ultrasound is definitely much more advanced. And in Italy, it's very advanced. That kind of concept you talked about, Mark, where, you know, you're the OBGYN resident and you go down to the ED with the ultrasound probe, that's their culture. I have a, an Israeli fellow right now and he lived and breathed that, you know, the, the wielding of the probe by the OBGYN resident was the, the norm. That was not a weird thing. They just all have the familiarity with using a TVS probe, a transvaginal ultrasound probe for, you know, point of care things really. And it's, it's normal for them. I felt like that's something that we lost though in the last decade or so. And that's just my own personal experience. You know, at, at the same time, like Amy said, as especially ED with their point of care stuff. Like they're using ultrasounds that have probes attached to their iPhones, right? I mean, all the technology is fantastic. Like what can be done, the access, the cost, it's amazing. And I, I just feel like maybe it was the medical legal side. I mean, you know, having ultrasounds, you know, residents doing ultrasounds of pregnancies and like all the potential implications. Maybe I'm not aware enough of what's going on across the country with training. I know that they all, everybody does a little, you know, ultrasound rotation. But the reason why I wanted that scan, and we said it again and again, but is to get my hand on the probe because I'm going to be able to visualize and make that connection to what happens in the operating room, right? I know where the ovaries are supposed to be because I operate on those uh, on those organs all the time. I know where the uterus is supposed to be. I'll know if it moves or not. I'll know. I'm curious to see how it plays out when I get to actually start doing this stuff. But I know what I feel when I get the OR. I know what I see on images, and I and I'm pretty excited about the idea that I'll be able to put those things together in the ultrasound suite because I just don't think unless you're in there doing it in the operating room as a strictly a diagnostician, if that's a word, I worry that those things are lost and there's just not that bridge. And I, and I, and, and that's where I think ultrasound is very specifically unique, right? I mean, that's why ED docs are not asking radiologists to come do their fast scan. They just do it themselves. Like they need to know what's going on. How do you, how do you look at the upper abdominal disease? Like you worry about diaphragmatic endo or ileal 
endo. I don't know the specifics of it, but can you tell us like how you do that? You know, the sliding signs, like how, how, how do you actually diagnose those things? We don't always diagnose all the types of endo that can exist. We're really limited with gynecological ultrasound sort of at the pelvic brim. So appendiceal endo, ileocecal endo, diaphragmatic endo. These are the more extra pelvic uh, sites that are rare, but not, you know, impossible or super rare. So uh, yesterday I saw a patient and this was in my ultrasound clinic, which is actually outside the hospital. And that's a different model that, you know, we haven't talked about yet. And I was scanning a patient for a colleague of mine who had abandoned a surgery because they had encountered very advanced disease. They didn't know that that patient had very advanced disease before planning that laparoscopy. And they had not allocated the right amount of time. They had not allocated the right surgical team with obliteration of the pouch of Douglas. Bowel endometriosis is very common. So there was no colorectal surgeon involved. So they abandoned that surgery. And then they said, go see Matthew for an advanced endo scan. And, uh, and so I read the surgical report and they said there was diaphragmatic endo. And so I looked, you know, I looked with the linear probe and the curved linear probe to see if I could find that diaphragmatic endo and, and I couldn't in her. I have found it in other people who have been told that they had diaphragmatic endo. And I use my superficial endometriosis ultrasound principles for that type of disease. But, you know, short ver- answer is I'm not perfect. Ultrasound's not perfect. We get MRIs still in these patients who have upper abdomen symptoms. And, uh, and even those, unfortunately, are, are not perfect yet. So the diagnostic test accuracy for diaphragmatic disease in particular is still very limited with imaging. So let me ask you then, are you scanning... 100% of your patients in whom you suspect endometriosis, so anybody with dysmenorrhea, pelvic pain. And then number two, which of those patients, are you still ordering MRIs for anyone with the exception of upper abdominal disease? For anyone with pelvic disease, are you getting MRIs? The answer to your first question is, if I'm looking after somebody as their gynecologist, they will have a scan done by me or one of my direct team members with me overseeing that scan. I will literally never operate on somebody without doing that scan. Uh, from an endometriosis perspective, of course, you know, there are ectopic pregnancies that come into the emerge and I look at those pictures always, but I don't always scan those patients myself. So yes, I scan every single one of my patients. The answer to your second question was how often do I use MRI? And the answer is seldom. I will order MRIs in patients who describe upper abdominal symptoms, shoulder tip pain, kind of catamenial um, pneumothorax type symptoms. And I have a, an amazing radiologist, Dr. Basma Al-Arnawut, who is my go-to. You know, she's the one that's starting to enhance the, the imaging domain of benign gynecology in our center. And she's really passionate about it. So, um, I order it for them. And if there's really, you know, terribly complex disease in a, in a way that I can't be as comfortable with the mapping of it myself through ultrasound. So, you know, maybe morbidly obese, lots of bowel content where I'm like, is the bowel, is that a real bowel nodule or is it not? I'll often get Basma to do an MRI in those patients. So that way we have the two views. So you've almost completely transitioned from MRI to ultrasound. Yeah. I don't, I, I, it's like extremely rare. I would say maybe one in a hundred patients will get an MRI. And are you bringing colorectal surgery in for patients that have col- colorectal disease? Is that something you, you learned to do yeah. 
in Australia, we just you do the resections yourself. The the practice patterns are so variable, place to place, especially country to country. This is, um, I think, going to be a really interesting uh, question in the coming years as we start to become aware of how common bowel endometriosis is. You know, amongst the people who are doing endo work, we know. You know, in tertiary centers, it's probably somewhere between twenty and thirty percent of the patients have bowel endo, and yet, as a MIG surgeon. You know, we're not learning how to perform a segmental bowel resection. Should we? Should we not? That's a you know obviously a huge question. GYN oncology fellows are learning bowel surgery all day every day. Right. Why is that not part of MIGS training for all of us? Right. Exactly. And maybe as we start to uh, across the board across our our continent here recognize how common this type of disease is, I think it might come into our domain surgically. I'm certainly performing discectomies myself, and I use the ultrasound to decide when I need to perform a discectomy versus a segmental resection. I am a, a firm believer that a shaving procedure is uh, probably going to leave disease behind because most of the time it's in the muscularis layer. And you know, if you're going to try and shave it, then you're kind of performing a discectomy, but you're kind of getting below that layer. But that's kind of where I've pushed myself to performing that discectomy rather than the segmental bowel resections. We involve our colorectal surgeons regularly. And I can tell you that it was a shock to them when I joined the team here because they, they were used to working with a, a MIG surgeon who did on occasion diagnose bowel endometriosis and did on occasion ask for them to come to the OR. But this was maybe like, twice a year. It was like a special event type thing. And pretty much on a regular basis, weekly, I'm sending them one or two consults for bowel endometriosis. And so when I joined and the head of colorectal surgery came to my first OR day together, you know, I was young. Oh, well, hopefully still young, but I was like a kind of a bull. You're still young. You're still young. So uh, I had like a kind of a bull-like attitude. I was like, I can diagnose bowel endometriosis. And if I diagnose bowel endometriosis, it's there. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. And so fast forward a year, you know, he said to me, you know, Matthew, when you started, I thought you were just so overconfident and you didn't know what you were doing. And, and he's like, and I was wrong. So now, you know, every case that we've done together, and I've asked him to come, there's a bowel nodule confirmed histologically. And I've never, ever called him without notice. He's never been called to one of my cases because I need him in the moment. I have called colorectal surgeon because there have been bowel injuries. We've had one bowel injury and a patient who's had a million surgeries. But I called him and I said, hey, this is what's happened. Are you okay if I fix it like this? And they've said, yeah, go for it. You're, you're good to fix it. So that trust has grown, but the number of cases is now coming to be astronomical for what they're used to, what our center is used to. And now I'm scanning for other people. So this is where things are going to get interesting. So a bunch of people from Toronto are sending me patients to scan. Because you guys are just down the road from Toronto, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a, a suburb of Toronto. It's its own city, Hamilton, but it's like a less than an hour drive. So it's, uh, it's pretty close. So people are coming from Toronto. And in the past few days, I've been scanning at my ultrasound clinic for the Toronto folks. And there are a number of bowel endometriosis cases that I've sent back to them with that diagnosis, the mapping of the disease. And I know for sure they're in centers where that culture doesn't exist yet. That awareness of bowel endo is like super low, it's a rare thing. 
But when they start to see the nodules, they're going to be asking their colorectal surgeon to come a lot. And that's going to be another shock for that team there. So I'm really excited to see what's going to happen as the diagnosis of bowel endo starts to become actually more real. It's not more prevalent. We're just better at finding it. You're, you're better at finding it. And that's something that, you know, we've, I'm very lucky. I've got a colorectal surgeon who is my colleague, my partner in our endometriosis program. And he is specifically in, interested in endometriosis. And I'm exceedingly lucky. But we're trying to figure this out. And we're trying to understand better how to do better because that's the fear. That's the worry is we put a scope in a patient. God, I did not. My exam didn't find it. And they're not considered for bowel surgery. Well, they're not prepped, right? So a bowel injury in an unprepped patient versus a prep patient from the colorectal surgeon's uh, view or their opinion is that it is two completely different surgeries, two completely different risks for infection for SSI, um, for deep infection. And for them, it's like wake them up and operate them twice. The risk to them is so much higher to do something when you're not prepared. That's happened a couple of times in a decade. But man, I feel like such a loser when that happens. And I just like, I just, that's why I want to do this because I just don't ever want to have that happen. Is uh, ultrasound better at diagnosing rectal disease and endometriosis than MRI? As per the literature, uh, yes, it is with a very slight increased sensitivity, but they're both good. Again, operator dependent and, and skill dependent. So if you have a really great radiologist looking at MRIs, they should really be able to tell you that there's bowel endo or, or not. But I'm also not ordering MRIs on every patient for whom I suspect endo. But if I'm scanning everybody, then I'm going to be more likely to catch those patients that have the unsuspected or surprised deep infiltrating disease. Yep. Most of the time they have bowel symptoms. They have something dysprunia, something that keys you into posterior cul-de-sac disease. But if I'm scanning them all myself, I feel like I can get that information like right now as opposed to, do I get the MRI? It's going to delay surgery, you know? And so that's really the motivation for me is to get that information in real time. And it sounds like it's working for you. Yeah. I find this very interesting because I remember one of my, the new hires here, Miguel Luna, did uh, grand rounds on bowel endo. And we talked about specifically ultrasound versus MRI. I couldn't remember all the details, but I really feel like we're at uh, what you describe as another inflection point. The imaging has gotten so much better for ultrasound diagnosing adenomyosis and endometriosis than when I was a resident. I finished my fellowship in 2009, so I finished residency in 2006. The ultrasound technology, I think, has really improved, number one. And number two is the which you also, both of you, allude to the importance of a multidisciplinary team with IR, with radiology, with colorectal surgery, with your residents, with your fellows, with urology. Um, it's, it's a huge endeavor and it's so hard to build that team in the clinic, on the outpatient setting, inpatient. Um, but I also want to tell you, Matthew, that I had that experience too of coming out and um, I almost find that to be my superpower People always underestimate me and I always deliver. And so I want to give you kudos because I almost feel like it's an advantage to come from behind like that. <laughs> because then, you, you know, you, you prove you're, you're right, you know, and you are, you believe in your vision and you, you take people along with you on your journey and you have believers now on the colorectal team and you've proven your chair to be correct in believing in this ultrasound program and to bring it to the national and international level. So kudos for 
believing in your vision, you know, because there's a lot of obstacles when you're the pioneer, let's just say. I know um, Mark had the same thing building a MIGS program at, at in Kentucky, right? It's hard. No, I mean, listen, it's it's not easy, but I'm super grateful. And I don't want to take all of Matthew's uh, Sunday. Um, but no, I'm extremely grateful for, for you to come on to tell us about how you did this because it is hard. It is hard to do new things. It is hard to change culture and, and practice patterns um, and, and to do that in a way that people want to talk to you and want to learn more about it. And, you know, I, I've been super interested in the work you're doing because these, the, these are the questions I have in my head. I'm like, I, I, I know there's something out there and I find you know, someone like you who's doing this, I'm like, oh my God, I've got to get this guy. I've got to get his ear for, you know, whether it's like at a meeting and just like drag him into a coffee shop. I'm like, hey, can I just ask you for a few? And that's what this show is, right? Is like, you know, instead of dragging you into a coffee shop at AGL, can I just have the conversation that everyone else gets to hear as well? Because I do think it's something we're all, we're all thinking about. So I, I am extremely grateful for you to come on today and talk to us. I am always impressed by the work you're doing. I don't know how you fit it all in. I know that they're extremely lucky in Hamilton to have you on, on staff there, to both, both for the patients and the, and the learners there. Um, but I just want to thank you for coming on Backtable OBGYN, sharing your story with us, sharing your practice with us and your expertise. You're someone I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. And so I'm super grateful. So thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, that's very kind words from both of you and uh, certainly words that will keep that fire going. You know, I... I believe wholeheartedly in what you know I'm doing and what those around the the world are doing in this same sphere. I'm not alone. You know, there are a lot of uh, people advocating for this enhancement. I am really fortunate. I've had great mentors to show me how to do that and show me how to be the surgeon sonologist. And I've had great support from you know individuals around the world who are encouraging of it, though not yet doing it like both of yourselves. I really hope that we can still have a coffee at AGL. I'll be there. I, I definitely owe you a coffee uh, or a drink, depending on what time of day we end up bumping into each other. No, I, I want to update you on how things are going. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have questions along the way, right? I'm, I'm going to find some, some something else I don't know, which I do every day, uh, that I need help uh, solving problems. And that, that to me is all this job is, like any, any job. Be curious. Mm -hmm. Follow your curiosity. Try to get questions to be answered. And don't be afraid to be the guy to say, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer. And will someone please just tell me? Because our patients deserve us to know as much as we can. It's interesting that you say that. The you know, Obviously, try and teach my residents and fellows a lot of different things. But the thing that I, I most try to teach them is to ask why, is to be curious and ask why, you know, whether it's like something super basic, you know, why is this OCP better than the other? doesn't matter. Just honestly, being curious, being creative thinking outside the box is, I think, the strategy to success. Most powerful force in the universe is curiosity. Yeah. I mean, passion is great. Passion burns out. Curiosity keeps you up at night, gets you out of bed in the morning. I, I just got, I cannot wait to find out what this thing is. And I think if you follow your curiosity and I think, you know, you're doing it and this is something that's been in my head for a long time. Yeah. I have two questions. One is, uh, Mark and I have followed you on Twitter. So can you tell the listeners what your handle is on Twitter? And number two is if we had a resident or trainee or somebody who is interested in learning GYN ultrasound, who's either a U.S. or Canadian grad or anywhere, I guess, where would you steer them in terms of finding that additional training? First answer is at Matthew Leonardi, M-A-T-H-E-W-L-E-O-N-A-R-D-I. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Matthew Leonardi. 
and on YouTube. I think YouTube has handles now. I don't know if I have a handle yet, but if you just search my name, Matthew Leonardi, you can find the channel. And I put some talks up there, which are educational, very educational, uh, aimed at essentially OBGYNs uh, and healthcare providers who are trying to enhance their own skill. And who knows what other social media platforms we will uh, we'll see coming in, in the near future. The second uh, question was, you know, what, what could a resident or a trainee do? I'll give you a short example. So um, there is uh, an individual in, in the U.S. Uh, who is going across the country to do a MIGS fellowship in California. And this guy also through Twitter reached out and asked about how he could learn ultrasound, uh, really intrigued with ultrasound. And I said, why don't you come for a visit? Why don't you come for a little observership to uh, to Hamilton uh, and, you know, spend a week with us and, and see or spend, you know, potentially even longer, uh, depending on availability, what your residency program allows. And he's like, really? Like, that's an option? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, come spend a week. So tomorrow he's coming. Yeah, he's, you know, maybe driving from uh, from the States up to Hamilton now. And he's going to spend a week with me in my clinic. He's going to come to the OR with me. He's going to come to my ultrasound clinic and see the structure of what I have created here. And he was surprised by that. But that's exactly what I did. I emailed Davor Yurkovic in London. And I said, I want to come and see what you're doing. I did that with George Condes. And I said, I want to come see what you're doing. That obviously turned into the whole fellowship, but people that are passionate about what they're doing, you know, both of you as well, why not? If you're an interested trainee, why not reach out to, to Mark to see what Mark's got going on for his endometriosis ultrasound and surgery program? Because you can learn from seeing what other people are doing. Maybe this is a great thing that Mark or Matthew or Amy is doing, and maybe this is not going to work in my center, but, you know, at least seeing how different ways uh, can work is really uh, going to help you figure out what your future holds. Follow your curiosity. If it's across the country or across the globe. You got to follow it. Um, or just across the internet. I mean, again, that's how a lot of the stuff gets done. That's how we. That's how the podcast got started. I was excited about being a guest. I was like, how do we do more of this? So no, that's, that's great advice. It's inspirational. And I think that's got me fired up again to, you know, and we, we're, we're getting close. We've got the tech now. We've got the room. We've got this machine. A lot of the big hurdles have been overcome. We've met through all the, jumped through all the hoops and met with all the admin folks. And so I, I look forward to updating you on the progress of our, of our endometriosis ultrasound program. And again, Dr. Matthew Leonardi, thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us. Amy and I are both super grateful that you were able to join us today. And we look forward to uh, hanging out in real life sometime soon. Yeah, I really look forward to that too. And I think I'm going to plan a visit to Lexington someday to, to come see what you got going on there, Mark. We'll, we'll just plan it around the horse races. Let me know. We will. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll make it a fun weekend. That sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much. 